Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. In the race for Missouri treasurer, the fact that the current Republican treasurer is running isn't deterring other members of his own party from declaring their candidacies. One of those candidates is State Senator Andrew Koenig. On this episode of Politically Speaking, Koenig speaks on what he would want to accomplish as treasurer, as well as his thoughts on the 2024 legislative session and the election cycle. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equal. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. we got to find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't want to leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. Joining me in studio in St. Louis, he is the political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. Jason Merzenbaum. And also in studio, it is a studio party today. Our guest today, he is the senator for the 15th District in the Missouri Senate. Andrew Koenig. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being back on the show. Before we get into all of our questions, we have a lot of them. Uh, I just want you to remind our listeners, you know, basically what your district is and who you cover. Sure. I represent the 15th district, which is West St. Louis County. It used to be South St. Louis County, both redistricting it moved west. And uh, this is my seventh year and I served eight years in the House. All righty. We're going to get right into it, which is the treasurer race. Basically, why did you decide to run for treasurer? Sure. I wanted to run for state treasurer to further um, conservative principles. I've been very effective in the Senate at um, passing conservative legislation. Um, I passed the school choice, the Missouri's first school choice bill, and um, I, that, that it's put in the state treasurer's office. I would like to expand that program, make it better. Um, I worked on that for years and years before we actually got it done. And so, uh, and then the second thing is they're in charge of running all of the money for the state of Missouri. Um, I think um, ESG is a big thing right now, um, which is environmental social governance. Um, the far left is trying to take over corporations. They're trying to take over our schools. And I would like to fight against that. Um, and I think the state treasurer, because of BlackRock and Vanguard are pushing these policies. They're trying to uh, force a transgender person to be on the boards of these and then push that left agenda throughout these corporations. And as state treasurer, I believe they have a fiduciary responsibility as board members to um, um, return investment for, for their shareholders, and I will fight against ESG. Okay, kind of say more about that. Is that, are you seeing like policies about that, or how are you kind of getting your information on that one? So like, for instance, the NASDAQ, um, in order to be a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ, you have to have an LGBTQ plus type person on their board. And what that does is then they're going to hire CEOs that are going to be more left-leaning. And we've seen a big pushback against that um, with Bud Light, um, with um, also Target this year. 
And so as the state treasurer in charge of investing all the money for the state of Missouri, I'm going to fight against ESG. Your decision means you'll be challenging a sitting Republican state treasurer, Vivek Malik. How do you think you'll be different from him? Well, I'm going to be more aggressive with working with the legislature. Um, I want I will be around um, working with the Senate and the House to push conservative policies, um, whether that's um, with ESG, whether that's with the school choice program. I want to work with the uh, conservative legislatures to expand the school choice program and work closely with them much more than our current state treasurer. And how do you think that will contrast with House Budget Chairman Cody Smith, who is also running for treasurer, announced on this show, by the way? <laughs> sure. Um, so I, I think I have proven myself. The Senate is very difficult to get um, to build consensus. Anybody can filibuster in the Senate. And I have proven to build consensus, um, for instance, on whether it's tax cuts. No one has cut more taxes than I have in probably the history of the state of Missouri. I passed the first um, income tax cut in, uh, in nearly 100 years. I cut the corporate income tax from six and a quarter down to 4%. I passed, I built consensus on the Wayfair bill, which cut the income tax as well. Um, also, like with that, we actually have um, the sales tax holiday that's actually coming around the corner this weekend. Um, for the first time, um, that sales tax holiday will also apply to the locals as well, not just, um, just the state portion, because it's kind of an opt-in. Um, then uh, the abortion bill, I passed the bill that eliminated abortion in this state. So these are very controversial issues, and I've been able to bid, build consensus um, with moderate Republicans and um, be able to um, get bills passed to filibuster. So this is more of a broad question. Like, how does a candidate differentiate themselves in a primary for treasurer when the duties are not as expansive as, say, running for governor or running for U.S. Senate? Sure. I think what we need um, at this at all of our statewide elected officials, if we want to be a competitive state like Florida, Texas, or Tennessee, we need all of our statewide offices speaking the same language and moving in the same direction. And so I think it's important, even if they, um, you know, I think it's very important that they're conservative, pushing conservative principles, even if um, they may not touch that particular policy. So it is not a secret that you have shown throughout your political career that you can win tough primaries and in 2020, a tough general election. But these races were primarily in Western St. Louis County, and it's a whole different ballgame to win a statewide race than just having proficiency in a particular part of a particular area. So how do you plan on parlaying your relatively regional success to a statewide race? Sure. Um, so, well, one, on my last race, there was either f roughly $4 million spent for or against me. Um, and so I think, you know, and St. Louis is the most expensive place to advertise in this state. And we're going to have a strong ground game across this entire state. And so we're going to be very competitive. I'm going to be raising money. Um, even if I'm not the most well-funded candidate, I do think we'll be extremely competitive with our ground game as well. One of the challenges for both you and Representative Smith is that Treasurer Malik has a large financial war chest with well over a million dollars if you include both this PAC and this campaign committee. How do you approach an opponent that may be well-funded? Um, yeah, I mean, he, he may be well-funded, but I don't think he's going to have the ground game that I have. Um, I think when we're traveling the state and we're speaking at different Republican groups, I think I can have a compelling story that people will respond to. And also, I'm going to when I spend my money, it's going to be done very efficiently. Um, he spent 
over $54,000 last quarter. And, um, you know, we're not going to be spending that kind of money. Well, you will like in yeah, J- next July year. of yeah, 2024. Right, sure. And if you're not, you're, if you're not spending money during that time, you're probably not going to win. Yeah, so I just yeah, want to make right. that clear to our listeners. I want to move on to your record as a legislator. You said you're on your seventh year. You're going to finish mm-hmm. your final year, which is kind of, I'm sure, a blur to think eight years and eight years. You know, you were a member of what was then known as the Conservative Caucus, but you seem to be really adept at accomplishing things in the office within the Senate. How do you thread that needle? Yeah, so I think what it is is I, you know, I'm one of the most conservative um, members of the Senate. Um, in fact, um, according to the American Conservative Union, I had a 100% conservative rating last year. Um, but I come in knowing that not everyone is going to agree with me. And so it's my job to convince them to build a bridge and try to get them to, uh, to either come to my side or sit down and not filibuster. And so I'm just relentless when I'm working a bill. I keep going over and over until I until I find that compromise. Do you think that you can continue to have a policymaking impact as treasurer, given that it's not as high profile as other statewide offices? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's uh, like, for instance, um, um, on the school choice bill, it is a very difficult issue to build, um, to even get enough votes. And it is an all hands on deck approach for the people that support that policy. You need someone in the state treasurer's office. You need someone in the governor's office. You need um, to, to in order to get those votes and um, build. And, and also, I understand that I've been through all those discussions over the years on that bill. Well, let's talk about empowerment savings accounts, uh, which you're alluding to right now. Can you talk a little bit about what they do and how you were able to get it across the finish line? Sure. Yeah. And so, um, you know, starting out on any school choice bill, you need 18 votes that obviously pass through something through the Senate. Usually starting out, we're sitting at 15, usually 15, 16. And so we're starting at a deficit. And so I'm actually very optimistic that we can actually do something on it this year. Um, Combined it with teacher pay, um, you know, there's a number of provisions. The state adequacy target hasn't been raised in a number of years. So I actually think, um, you know, building a consensus with the public school groups that have some needs that they want I actually am optimistic we can pass a bill this coming year that will do some expansion. But um, what the bill does, uh, sorry, I didn't exactly answer the question. Yeah, I was just going to, I was about to ask the question again, so you yeah. caught me. So good, good, good job, Senator. So what it does is it takes the state adequacy target and allows people to donate. And the donations are 100% tax credit. And so um, you cannot donate to a specific kid um, it's um, you're donating to these EAOs. These EAOs then hand out scholarships to specific schools. So like the Lutheran schools have an EAO. The Catholics have an EAO that they um, collect donations for and then hand out these scholarships for. Uh, scholarships are the state advocacy target, which is around 6,200 is the maximum um, scholarship. And that can go up when the state advocacy target goes up. So well, you've mentioned several times that you want to expand ESAs beyond where they are right now. For example, one of the compromises that was put forward was, I think that they can only be used in certain sized cities. And that really just seemed to be a compromise to prevent some of the rural Republicans from voting against it. Because uh, this is kind of more for our listeners that I'm sure know this already, but um, there are a lot of rural Republicans that do not like the idea of school choice or school vouchers or ESAs or whatever you want to call it. 
So if you try to like expand it beyond large cities and bring it everywhere, do you think you're going to run into that type of opposition that require you to make that concession in the first place? Sure. Yeah. There's a number of different expansions that you, we could be talking about. One is um, the dollar amount to make sure that more kids have access. Um, another one is to help the program get fully funded. It is currently not fully funded. And this is another thing I, as state treasurer I'd like to do is I would like to go out and raise money for the program, make sure it's fully funded. Um, also, when it comes to geographical expansion, right now you have to be in a, a charter county or a municipality of 30,000. Well, we could include all of the counties that have municipalities of 30,000 more. For instance, like Cape Girardeau County is not included, but Cape Girardeau City is. Um, and that could be an expansion. And currently, a lot of those counties, those senators fully support the program. So right now, I, don't, I think you could have a geographical expansion. It wouldn't be a huge problem. Um, and then also right now, this, like I said, the state accuracy target is not, may not be enough to send a child to a private school because they don't get any of the local portion. So there could be a bump and in increase in the amount of scholarships. So there's a number of um, things with the program. And I think this is important. We have, we have some schools in this state where there's not a single child that's proficient in English and math. I know if I had a child that had to go to one of those schools, I would want another option. Those kids deserve another option. Uh, is there any way you would manage the essay program different from treasurers uh, Fitzpatrick or Malik? Yeah, so there are some rules uh, that um, that or the state treasurer does promulgate rules for the program. Um, what I would like to do is I would like to work with all the private schools across the state, which looks like it's not really being done. Um, to be able to unify them to raise the money for the program. Also, there's a provision for homeschoolers that requires, like we have a, a thing in there, you have to do a background check. Well, if you're homeschooling your child and your child's in your house, it doesn't really make sense that you would have to do a background check, in my opinion. One of the other roles that a state treasurer would have is being a member of the Missouri Housing Development Commission, which doles out state low-income housing tax credits. Is there any way you would want to alter that program more than what Treasurer Fitzpatrick engineered a couple years ago? Yeah, actually, he, uh, Fitzpatrick actually did have some good reforms. Um, I do believe in, I will be looking to make that program more efficient. Um, I do want to make sure that that money is spent. I'm generally uh, opposed to um, tax credits in general. Um, but I would make sure that those rules are are being efficient and not wasted. And also, you have to make sure that the rules that are put in place stay in place Correct. because the only reason they're in place right now is because the M MDHC agreed to them. If there's a whole new group of statewide office holders that want to like make it less restrictive, and we're getting a little in the weeds here, but there'll be a lot of pressure from developers to make it less restrictive. How would you be able to combat that, especially if some of your other fellow members of the MDHC want to expand it, basically? I know we're getting really into the weeds of this, but this was like the most controversial issue of Missouri politics in 2017 and 2018. Yeah, I mean, I think it obviously depends on um, some of the other races and who is actually going to be sitting on that board. Um, but I will certainly try to present the conservative case for making sure that those are done efficiently and 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 not program not promote programs that are wasted. Something you mentioned earlier was that you've how you've handled tax cuts throughout the past decade or so. Can you talk a little bit about that more and how you think this advocacy relates to being state treasurer? 
Sure, because the, obviously the state treasurer is in charge of investing all the money for for the state of Missouri, and and I believe I believe in limited government, and I want to see more of those dollars in people's hands, um, everyday citizens, and not um, not in in government. And so I, you know, as state treasurer, I'll certainly advocate for um, continue tax cuts, limited government. Um, I've passed the first income tax cut in nearly a hundred years. Um, back in um, 2015 and 16. Then um, I passed the Wayfair bill, which further cut the income tax, um, expanded the sales tax base. Then I cut the corporate income tax for the first time in Missouri's history from six and a quarter down to 4%, making Missouri the second lowest income or corporate income tax state in the country, besides the few that don't have one. And um, and then this last year, I was um, part of the bill that cut it again during the special session. Missouri still has a large budgetary surplus, even though lawmakers have passed tax cuts over the last few years. Are there any concerns that these measures could backfire in a future when that surplus is gone? Um, I don't think so, because I think there are efficiencies that can be made within our budget. Um, but currently right now, we have more money than we know what to do with. Kind of related to that, Governor Parson cited the legislation that would end state taxes for Social Security and pension benefits, as well as allowing counties to freeze property taxes for seniors uh, for vetoing a number of items in the 2024 budget. What do you think of the governor's decision on that? Yeah, I mean, he vetoed over $500 million, I believe. Um, and, you know, I didn't go line by line through all of them. We'll, we'll do that when we get to veto. Um, it did look like some of those might have been targeted in areas of conservative caucus members, um, which, uh, I mean, St. Charles got a lot of things vetoed. Um, I'm not, I don't put a lot of things in the budget because I'm not a big spender, but he did veto the one thing I put in the budget as well. Was was, was that the $500,000 for the pond at yeah. Blasis Park, yes. which I did a reel at uh, yeah. for Instagram? Wow, that was going to be my next question. Uh, what did you? Okay, I do have to ask about that. That's a very nice park, and I understand that like you want to get state money for that. But I could also see people being like, okay, Baldwin can find five hundred thousand dollars to do that themselves, and they don't need state money for that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's actually been a general thing that the governor said in his vetoes that you could get local money, and the state money seems not appropriate here. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not I'm I'm actually not going to give a lot of beef for um, what the governor and his vetoes, um, because I am a believer in limited government and less spending. And so I'm not going to I'm not going to attack the governor for that at all. Well, it's interesting. Governor's vetoes has spurred some bipartisan criticism. You mentioned St. Charles. That includes uh, St. Charles legislators like Senator Nick Schroer. You know, he was not happy mm -hmm. about some of these decisions. You know, others thought, you know, there could have been lo local nature. What do you think about kind of just overall the decision and, and the fact that it has kind of spurred this much kind of criticism? Yeah, I mean, I, I think overall the budget was too big. Um, and I think uh, some vetoes were certainly warranted um, because of how much money we spent. Just because we have it doesn't mean we should spend it. And so, like I said, I'm not going to attack the governor for, for, for vetoing um, a bloated budget. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. 
Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And we're back on the show with our guest, Senator Andrew Koenig, who is the senator for the 15th district. We're going to get right back into it. Now we have some questions about the upcoming session, which is, again, your, your final year. Do you expect that lawmakers will try to put something on the ballot that would make the Missouri Constitution more difficult to amend? Yeah, I fully expect um, or I, I hope that we pass initiative petition reform. I think that's very important because we shouldn't treat our Constitution like it's a statute book. Um, I have no problem if the people put an IP, a statutory IP on there, and the legislature is somehow restricted in changing that um, for some period of time. But to put something in the Constitution that makes it very difficult, there it could be a good idea, but it might not. It might need some tweaks or some changes, and it doesn't go through that amendment process that we see in the legislature. And so I do not like. I do think it should be a much higher threshold. Um, and there's a number of ways that could be done, whether it's um, a majority of House districts in the, or a majority of congressional districts are a couple of different approaches or just raising the threshold. I think this makes sense to do. Yeah. When it went through the House, which was a 60 percent, and when it went through the Senate, it did end up being issues of congressional districts, how many in each area. That's kind of how it changed. Can you elaborate on that and kind of what that would mean? Yeah. So there are definitely some conservative groups on both sides of this issue. There's some that just want to raise the threshold to 57, 60%. Then there are some groups that want more of like, uh, you know, like what we have at the federal level where, at the, you know, if you change the U.S. Constitution, you have to have the states ratify it, three-fourths of the states. I do have some concerns that if it's a House district, that that threshold is still rather low. And so um, I do want a high enough threshold for it to be effective but not so high that it can't be done. Is there any concern that if you have, let's say, 57% or majority with like five out of eight congressional districts, that the second part of that but with the congressional districts could be unconstitutional because it could violate the concept of one person, one vote? I disagree. With, I disagree. Some of those um, cases, and I have, I have to go back and <laughs> remember, but um, when I was looking at those cases, I didn't think they have had um, any basis in what we were trying to do. Um, I, I, I completely disagree with that legal thought. From a more like practical perspective, because if you put something like that on the ballot, it's going to have to be approved by voters. Is there any concern that that may be too complicated to explain to people and it may just be easier to say we're going from a simple majority to 60 percent? Actually, that was definitely one of my concerns. Um, I thought it um, it could be confusing. Um, and so I've got I've been back and forth on which way is the best approach. Um, but what we pat what we went to conference on ended up being um, basically an either or. You have to get five out of eight congressional districts or sixty percent. So on the last day of session, House Speaker Dean Plocker said very explicitly that there needed to be movement on so-called IP reform in order to make sure that abortion is still illegal in Missouri. And to be blunt about it, what he was saying was that, in his view, IP reform, which is what the name proponents use to call it, not me. I, I don't <laughs> like the word reform, but I'm just going to do it for clarity. He basically said, like, what a lot of Democrats have accused a lot of Republicans of, and that is that they're only pushing 
IP reform aggressively because they want to raise the threshold to pass a constitutional amendment to make it more difficult to legalize abortion. So what do you think of his comments? And is that one of the reasons why Republicans are making this a priority this this year or next year? I think it's a priority because what we see is we have millions of dollars in left-leaning groups coming in and spending, um, spending those dollars in Missouri to try to change Missouri's constitution because they can't do it through the legislature. And so I think um, as a conservative Republican, we want to protect our constitution from that threat. Um, that threat could be different from year to year. It may be abortion one year or maybe ranked choice voting another year. I mean, those are the two threats that we're seeing right now. Um, when it comes to abortion, I mean, we don't know what exactly they're going to be putting on the ballot or if it will even be on the ballot. Um, if they put on, you know, abortion on demand all the way up to birth, I mean, I don't think the people of Missouri are going to vote for that. Um, I mean, that's a radical position um, saying that you can kill your child at 30 weeks. Um, and I don't think Missourians support that at all. So it all depends on what the language looks like, what they're going to have, what kind of ballot candy um, what the you know what the language looks like when it's on there, they could put that. Another problem with um, a lot of these um, IPs that are put onto the ballot is they put the, the voter doesn't necessarily read or see everything that is in the bill or it, it, the changes that it would be in the Constitution. Um, they read the ballot language, which is often a hundred words or less. And so they don't get a full picture of what what's really going on. As you said, you know, we don't know what that initiative will look like if there would be an initiative uh, dealing with abortion on the ballot. Let's do kind of a hypothetical. Let's say it's at I know we could do hypotheticals all day long, but let's say 20 weeks up to 20 weeks with exceptions for rape and incest and medical emergencies. How do you think that would be received by voters? I think there's a good chance that voters would vote against it. Now, would I want to take that? Would I want to take that chance? No, because I'm pro-life. I, be, I believe that life begins at conception. I think all the scientific evidence points to that. There's three differences between a baby inside the womb and outside the womb. One is location, one is level of development, and one is level of dependency. None of those three things determine whether you're whether or not you're a human being. It's a scientific fact that life exists in the womb and the state has an interest in protecting that. So the, it's not even for sure that the group that's under litigation right now, which we'll talk about in a second, is even gonna be the, the entity that puts a, a, a measure forward. What oh, let's continue on this hypothetical train. If somebody puts a more quote unquote modest proposal forward that simply says exceptions for people that become pregnant due to rape, incest, expanding the the medical emergency, and saying specifically that no woman would be prosecuted for getting an abortion, how do you think voters would perceive that type of initiative? Yeah, I mean, I think that something like that would be more likely to pass. Um, but like I said, it, without knowing the exact language, how much money is behind it. And I mean, there's just a number of factors um, that would go into it. Even though like we, we saw this kind of with uh, Lieutenant Governor Kehoe recently saying he would be amenable to putting exceptions for uh, rape and incest, there is a contingent, including yourself, that do not want those exceptions. But would you concede, though, concede that publicly, if it was put up for a vote, that those exceptions would be broadly popular throughout Missouri? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree that some of those provisions would be popular, even though I, I would be against them. Speaking of getting an abortion-related language on the ballot, you know, there is one right now that's been a lot of procedural delays in getting that plan forward. First, because there was a dispute over the fiscal note between 
the Attorney, auditor's office General and attorney general's office. Yeah. Yes. And now because of ballot summary language, what would you say to people who believe that Republicans are gumming up the works here to prevent this from going to voters? Because every day that they're either suing over the fiscal note or dealing with the summary is the day that they can't collect signatures. Yeah. I mean, I, I support any, any, uh, I su- fully support gumming up the process because I do not want um, any measure going to a vote of the people, specifically when it comes to abortion, because that life has an interest in being protected by this state because scientific evidence points that life exists in the womb. So by saying that, are you not confident that opponents of abortion rights can't mount an effective campaign to, to essentially defeat one of these initiatives? I'm not saying that. I just don't want to take the risk. Okay. Now, I think this is kind of a broader question about uh, IP, quote unquote, IP reform, which again. Making I, the Constitution harder to open. Yes. We'll go with that. I, it's, it's early. I'm just <laughs> using that shorthand because it's, 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 it's and, early. And actually, you know, like what doing initiative petition reform, the one that we're talking about, yeah. would only do the Constitution. Right. The abortion is a statute. So they could theoretically do that even if we did pass um, right. some kind of reform. I just don't want it in the Constitution. Right. That's a good point. Like they could they could sort of uh, redirect and do a statutory change or Correct. something like that. And it wouldn't prohibit anything that they're trying to do. Um, they could still do through statute. statute. That's, a, that's an excellent point. But my, I guess this is part of a, a broader question. Republicans have been very good at a lot of things in Missouri politics, especially since 2016. They've won all the statewide elections. They win a lot of legislative races. They, you know, are able to get a lot of policies passed. But one thing that I've noticed that they've done exceedingly poor at is running opposition campaigns to some of these initiative petitions that you dislike, like Medicaid expansion, the first clean Missouri um, marijuana, which I know is not necessarily like a, I know a lot of Republicans support legal marijuana, but isn't the problem that there's not like a concerted effort to run opposition campaigns to these things you don't like and not the threshold issue that you talk talk about? Like, well, yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to money. So a lot of these um, initiatives have a lot of mo- millions of dollars behind them. And the opposition doesn't have millions of dollars. And so it's not a true picture. The, the voters are not being presented with a true fair question. They're getting bombarded from one side and then the opposition just doesn't have the money to combat that. But what is stopping the opposition from getting the money in organization? I mean, again, Republicans control the state. They have the donor bases to drum this up. Like, why can't they get the money to oppose some of these things? Well, a lot of a lot of this money is coming in from out le- left leaning liberal groups outside of the state of Missouri. They're coming in like the ranked choice voting thing is not um, an organic situation that's happening within this state. I mean, they, um, there's a concerted effort to uh, for these liberal groups to go into Republican states. They did it to Alaska. They're doing it. To, uh, you know, they trying to come in into Missouri. So. Um, for us, for conservatives to fight that, you'd have to go out and raise millions and millions of dollars to fight it. There might be lots of Republicans who are very much against that or grassroots people are very much against it, but they don't have millions of dollars to donate to, uh, to an effort like this. So moving on a little, do you expect anything to get done in 2024, considering it will be an election year, people will be trying to get their issues front and center to help their campaigns. What do you think that, you know, so, how, how's next year going to go? 
Yeah, I mean, in trying to predict what's going to happen in the Senate or the legislature is uh, is a very difficult thing. But I'm an optimistic person, and that's why I've been so successful, because on the bills I work, I just never give up and I keep going at it. And so I'm fully expecting to pass a big education package um, with the ESA expansion, along with um, addressing the state accuracy target and, and teacher pay. Yeah, last year, last session, there was a big bill <laughs> that you managed to get through or, you know, get up to the Senate, but then it would go through. Is the, are those more or less a lot of the ideas in there that you want to yeah, get that's, done? Yeah, that's the blueprint. And I believe that uh, I believe there is a path forward on that. Now, what about sport? What about uh, sports betting? That issue has become commingled with basically legalizing slot machines in places like gas stations and fraternal organizations. And it seems like as long as those two issues are linked, there's not going to be any movement on legalizing sports betting. What's kind of your feeling about that? So, I mean, when it comes to sports betting, I think people are doing it anyways. Um, I'm definitely a little bit libertarian when it comes to that. I think if you want to spend your money on sports betting, you should have the right to do so. It's your money. Um, now, that being said, do I think something's going to get done? I'm uh, not very optimistic about something getting done. <laughs> which, which is, I, uh, yeah. I is that more just waiting out for Senator Hoskins to not be there or is someone else going to take up the mantle, you think? I think it's probably, you know, not this session, but the following session, it's likely to get done. Or do you think that there could be an initiative petition that is funded by the sports teams, which ends up legalizing sports betting in a way that is very beneficial to the sports teams? Like that. Yeah, I mean that is that is definitely a, that is definitely a little bit of a concern to mind that I don't I don't necessarily want the teams to have a monopoly on it. You know, I think we should have a an open market. So more or less, you're willing, you're more wanting to see it passed because that'll be more beneficial to the state if it's right. done through the legislature. Mm -hmm. That's all the time we have on the show. Thank you so much, Senator Koenig, for joining us today. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can follow all of our coverage at stlpr.org. And Senator Koenig, where can people find you on the internet where you want to be found? Yep, you can go to electandrewkoenig.com. You can go on Twitter uh, at Koenig4mo, and then you can also find me on Twitter. All right, until next time, so long. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.